In the days since an earthquake killed more than 2,000 people in Haiti, the country has been in mourning and anguish. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 19th. Today, we take you on the ground in Haiti, where tragedies are compounding one after another. The country is still recovering from a massive earthquake more than a decade ago that left more than 200,000 people dead. Last month, the president was assassinated in his own home. Then, this past weekend, another earthquake hit a rural part of the country in the south. Then, a tropical storm hit, complicating search and rescue efforts. You know, the assassination of President Moise in July probably hasn't helped the government response time, but most local officials we talked to expected a fractured, hobbled response from the national government, regardless of who was in charge. That's Caribbean Bureau Chief Anthony Fiola. He is in Haiti now, reporting from the hardest hit parts of the country. Haiti has become the dominion of warlords and warlord-like gangs, which control part of the country. In fact, several parts of the country, particularly in the capital, um, including some of the main arteries that lead to the devastated areas in the south, in the southern peninsula. Um, There have been efforts to negotiate a truce with these gangs to let aid flow, but it's a shaky truce at best. And kidnappings, including of doctors, as well as other criminal activity, is still happening despite the disaster. In the city of LaSalle, where we were at today, there was a lot of criticism about the slow government response and lack of official aid But there was also a little tone of surprise. I mean, nobody expected much from the federal government. Whether Moise was alive or not, they kind of knew they were on their own from the beginning of this. LaSalle is about 10 miles away from the epicenter of the earthquake. According to the mayor, more than half of the buildings are destroyed. It was crushed by Saturday's 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Much of the town is in ruins. When we arrived... A funeral was happening in a in a ruined churchyard. Okay, I'm just gonna. Oh God, maybe ask him. I just want to observe. Just one of many that have been going on in the town. 33 people have been found dead there so far. The mayor and the local authorities know that the number will climb. We passed by destroyed houses where they would rattle off the names of people who they knew who lived there and who they believed were dead inside, but hadn't yet been able to be dug up yet. We asked Tony what stuck with him the most in covering this crisis. And just a warning, his answer and the tape that you're about to hear are upsetting. You know, what sticks with me most covering this horrific earthquake so far is a mother I talked to today who blamed herself for the death of her infant. Saturday, one of the baby was in her hand. The other one was outside with the little brother. And 
the earthquake passed, she was inside cleaning. One baby was there and the other one passed away. The whole house fell on the baby. Oh my God, was she outside or? Uh, the baby was on the patio. The baby was on the patio and it's a baby on the patio who died? Yes. And, and she was inside the house. Yes. She was inside the house. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. See, all her head going down, oh she's God. all injured. You know, um, in terms of medical care, what medical care has she received? À propos de médicaments, qui sont recevoir comme médicaments? She said only here, they right. give her those little bandages. She never received any medical help. Have, uh, do you have any medications or do you have, is she taking any medications? Is she she have bon medicaments pour boire actuellement là? Said uh, the first time she came, they give her some painkillers and that's it. Okay. And does she have open wounds? Anthony says there are countless heartbreaking tragedies he has heard during his time there. And now the focus is on saving as many lives as they can. But the people he's spoken with say that the emergency response has been slow. You know, in disaster situations, it can take time to ramp up. It could be very easily seen that there would be bodies in the streets for days. Haiti is going to be no exception. There have been frustrated voices that foreign search and rescue operations um, should have been faster and bigger and should still be. Um, you know, that aid was too slow to arrive. But foreign governments and international aid organizations are also facing some of the same challenges as local and federal governments. I mean, Haiti is a country with very little rule of law, and the gangs have made access by land a real challenge. Aid groups will tell you that they're doing everything they can and that they're also trying to avoid the mistakes they made with misdirected funds and misdirected operations after the catastrophic earthquake in 2010, which hit closer to Port-au-Prince. Rescue efforts um, in the Caribbean are always complicated because of complicated geography and, and, and places that are hard to reach by land, which you often have to reach by sea or plane or helicopter. Tropical Storm Grace didn't help here in Haiti. That was the storm that hit on Monday after the earthquake. It forced rescue and aid operations to kind of go into hibernation overnight on Monday, probably just when they were needed most. Today, when we were in the city of La Salle that had been hit so hard, I heard a, a heartbreaking story of a man who had been trapped in a landslide and had been anguishedly crying for help for, for days, I mean, since Saturday. I mean, residents had tried to dig him up, um, but he was under a lot of rubble. Um, and after the rains came from Grace, he just stopped calling out and the residents stopped digging um, because they have a lot of other dead to bury. Anthony Fiola is the Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. The voice you heard translating was the journalist Widlor Marincourt. You may remember him from our previous episode about Haiti after the president's assassination. We'll put a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. After the break, we will dive deeper into some of the challenges of making Haiti's infrastructure earthquake-proof. We'll be right back. When we think about the devastation in Haiti, it's not the earthquake necessarily that kills people, but the buildings that collapse on top of them. And in that country, when an earthquake strikes, it is so much more deadly than in many other countries, because buildings aren't designed to withstand them. 
Which is why we wanted to talk to engineer Reginald DeRoche. He's Haitian-American. He's also the provost of Rice University. And after the earthquake in 2010, he traveled to Haiti about a dozen times. He was leading a U.S. team of engineers and architects to investigate why the damage was so severe and to think about how to put in place solutions for the future. I asked him how he felt when he first saw the news this week, that there had been another, even more massive earthquake in Haiti. you got to be kidding me. Like, Haiti just does not need this. You're like, oh my God, Haiti doesn't need this. Haiti's struggling with COVID, they're struggling with poverty. They've been struggling the last couple of years with crime. And, and then you saw that, and then when I saw this, I said, this couldn't be correct. Not, not another earthquake now. We weren't really expecting it this soon, or we weren't expecting it in this part of the country. And I was shocked. And the first thing I thought was, boy, if it's in Port-au-Prince, it's going to be disastrous again, because it was a larger earthquake. It was actually twice as large as the previous one. But fortunately, being in a more rural area is really what saved uh, us from having the, the type of numbers we saw in Port-au-Prince. So when we think about the effects of natural disasters in Haiti and when we think about this earthquake and the tropical storm, how does engineering fit into that conversation? Oh, quite a bit. It's real, I mean, engineering is a big part. It's not the only part, but certainly a big part of what Haiti needs. Engineering knowledge, engineering expertise, engineering training to make sure what's happening now, what happened in 2010, and, and hopefully what won't happen in the future doesn't doesn't really occur um, we need to make sure that they have people trained to be able to to design these buildings to be able to withstand these earthquakes. And tell me about some of the memories or moments that stand out in your head of, of things that you saw or people that you talked to that really I- informed your understanding of what went wrong. It was incredible just to see the level of devastation. I'd been to a number of earthquake reconnaissance before, and I've never seen anything like this. Uh, obviously, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of 200 to 300,000 dead, uh, 1.5 million homeless. And so just the level of devastation is something I've never seen before in my entire life. And just to go around and meet people and realize that everybody in Port-au-Prince lost somebody. Everybody was impacted. It was really uh, quite unbelievable. And, and the memories last uh, last forever. You know, those are things I'll never forget. So there are a number of trips where we really focused on trying to understand why there was so much widespread devastation in, in Haiti from this moderate earthquake, 7.0 earthquake. Um, And there were several things. One was we realized the materials were really poor. We actually collected samples of materials in Haiti, brought them back here to the U.S. and tested them. And they were a third at at best of the strength of what we would require here in in the U.S. We saw the details that they used for earthquake design were not adequate. The types of materials that they used were not adequate. And so there were clearly some structures that you realize, of course, this would have collapsed because it just, it it wouldn't stand a chance given the, the way it was designed and the materials that were used to design it. And why does that happen? If this is a place where they know that earthquakes are a likelihood. Um, why do you see that lack of, of strength in design and in materials that are used to build buildings? There, there are many reasons. So there's a there's the education piece. Uh, earthquake engineering had not been taught in the classes prior to this because they really hadn't had a large earthquake like this in, in many years. And so it wasn't really part of the curriculum. So I think that's, that's one piece. Part of the reasons they used uh, poor materials, obviously, is economic 
Um, it's, it's easier to put more water in the concrete because it's less expensive, but yet your concrete then becomes much weaker. And so the quality of materials that they use in some cases have to do with the economics and, and trying to cut costs on, on these buildings. And the other is just knowledge, not knowing the right proportions of materials to use to make strong concrete, not knowing the sequence of construction that you, you need to have to make sure your building has a much better chance of surviving during the earthquake. And that's really the effort that's been taking place since 2010 on the ground to try to educate people about how you do these simple things that will make your structures much stronger, much more likely to withstand an earthquake. For someone who's never been there, can you describe, like, how does a house in Haiti or a building in Haiti look different from something in a, in a place where it's earthquake-proof? Like, like just paint a picture for me of, of what's different. The vast majority of the structures in Haiti are built using what we call unreinforced masonry, masonry blocks. And uh, they do that partly because of the cost, but also because they tend to be very uh, resistant to wind loads and hurricane loads, which are great. And this is a problem in many parts of the world where you have these multiple hazards in the Caribbean and South America and Latin America. You want to build these structures that are somewhat heavy so that they can withstand the heavy wind loads when you have hurricanes coming through. But heaviness is just what you don't want in an earthquake. You want things that are light because the load is proportional to the uh, to the weight of the structure. And so you have a lot of these structures that are heavy, but they're very brittle, which is which is not good. Whereas in the U.S., particularly homes I'm talking about now, many homes in the U.S. are wood-framed homes. Wood is great. In fact, one of the things we found in Haiti, there's a part of Haiti that has uh, a lot of these beautiful wooden homes they were not damaged during the earthquake in 2010. In fact, you would see a situation where you'd have a wooden home, two or three stories right next to a brick home, unreinforced concrete home would be completely demolished and the wooden home would have just light damage. You saw that everywhere in Haiti because wood is light, it's much more flexible, but Haiti doesn't have wood because it deforested most of the country. And so that's one of the challenges they have in terms of not having proper building materials like we have in the U.S. and many parts of the world have. That is fascinating. And I think... A really painful irony that people who are trying to prepare for a hurricane, where, I mean, Haiti is also likely to get a lot of those every year, that the buildings that they're trying to build to withstand hurricane winds are also the same buildings that are worst in an earthquake. Yeah, it really is. And in fact, even some of the engineered buildings, I mean, many of the homes are that way, but in, in the engineering buildings, we'd see these huge buildings and it had these heavy, heavy masses. And the first thing we'd say, we'd look at this and say, there's no way this would have survived just because it's so massive and heavy. Great during hurricanes, but certainly very, very dangerous during earthquakes. So how do you fix that? You mentioned wood as one solution. What are other ways to create buildings that can uh, work in hurricanes or earthquakes? So certainly wood wood is one thing, and wood is only good for smaller structures. But we do know how to do structures that could withstand both both wind and earthquakes. It's really a matter of having the right details and the right quality of the materials. There are some very small things that you can do in terms of where you put the steel in your concrete structure to make sure that it's ductile. And when we say ductile, we want structures that can bend during an earthquake, go back and forth, flex, but not break. And there's a way of doing that, but you have to be educated and, and really understand exactly where you place the steel in the connection areas to build that ductility. And many of the structures in Haiti did not have that. The vast majority of the engineer structures didn't have that level of detail because they weren't designed that way. And so tell me a little bit more about that process of figuring out what needs to change. So we were pretty quickly able to realize what was wrong and, and what needed to change. 
And so you'll, you'll see there are a number of organizations that were in Haiti, and some of them are still there. Some of them, unfortunately, had to leave because of security issues in the country. But they were focused on, on teaching the Masons. The, the, one of the challenges in a place like Haiti, and it's not just distinct to Haiti, but many developing countries, most of the structures are not built. Over 90% are not built uh, by engineers or professionally designed. They're built by local Masons. And so, and they don't have professional engineers, engineering design. And so you have to get on the ground uh, in the neighborhoods, in the communities and teach people, this is how you make concrete that's going to be strong once it's set. This is the sequence of construction that you want to use to make sure your structure has a chance of withstanding the earthquake. And those efforts have been going on since 2010. Uh, probably not enough, but certainly I think it's had some impact. They've been all over the country, the northern part of the country, where we thought the next earthquake would occur because of the fault structure, uh, and it didn't. But there's, there's been those efforts taking place throughout the country. I also think that there's been more conversation, at least in the U.S. recently, about the history of colonialism in Haiti and how that has really undermined some of the systems that could be in place to help people, and especially in moments of natural disaster. So how do you think that legacy fits into this conversation about buildings and why they aren't strong enough to withstand earthquakes and hurricanes? No, that's exactly right. What happened in Haiti wasn't just something that's happened in the last 10 or 20 years. It's really, it dates back to its history of colonialism. It dates back to when Haiti uh, became the first freed black, black nation in the world and the subsequent events that happened because of that and the way Haiti was treated by the international community. Those effects are still there to this day. If you look back several hundred years that when Haiti obtained its freedom from France, I think everybody knows France imposed a debt on Haiti, a debt that Haiti was paying really until the last recent decades. And so because of that, Haiti was never really able to uh, to recover as a country because they've been paying back this debt to France for, for many decades. And I think that, that all has implications in terms of how they're able to, to, to rebuild things safely. We're seeing it play out today. It played out in 2010 with the, just the challenge they had in, in recovering from that event and responding to it. It's going to happen again now. It's going to be even worse because of the recent assassination and obviously the other challenges they have with with COVID and the security issues that are in Haiti right now. It's going to be a really long road for them to recover from this event. And do you think that Haiti is better off in this moment than they were in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake? Do you think that enough has changed in terms of the ways that buildings are designed and built that they are at least in a slightly better place? Not not much. I think slightly better. Certainly, they're in a slightly better place in, in Port-au-Prince, where they've made sure some of the major structures that are in Haiti now were built using the right codes and built using the right types of construction practices. I think the challenges will remain in the rural areas like Lakai and, and the northern part of the country where they don't have that same focus uh, in Haiti. And I think you're going to continue to see um, problems unless they really invest in earthquake-resistant design, invest in people on the ground being trained to be able to build these, these structures to be much, much more safe. What do you think the international community can do now for Haiti? Multiple things. You know, in the short term right now, they're still in the acute response and recovery phase of the earthquake. 
uh, and they need to do that as expeditiously as they can. There are a number of challenges with security uh, issues and then uh, obviously COVID, but trying to, to, to reach out and trying to help them uh, in the short term, remove all the debris and trying to get back to some level of normalcy in, the, in those communities and obviously treating those that, that are injured and trying to help them recover. I think beyond that, we need to continue this effort of, of having organizations in Haiti to, to build capacity around this. This is something that they will have to deal with forever. It, we may not have one in the near future, but Haiti will continue to have earthquakes. And so we need to figure out a way to get this knowledge to the people on the ground and, and help them know, understand how to build these structures safer. Reginald DeRoche is the provost at Rice University and a professor of civil and environmental engineering. That's it for Post Reports. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed and produced by Alexis Diao and Jordan Marie Smith. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.